Hey there, podcast fam. Welcome back to Steve's show. Um, today, I'm very happy and proud to, uh, to interview Rose Radford. She's got an incredible story, um, working her way up to McKinsey and going from McKinsey and deciding that the best path for her was entrepreneurship. She's an award-winning CEO of The Millionaire Girl Next Door. Uh, she's founded a company that helps other women uh, establish their businesses and run those businesses more efficiently. She teaches you how to build incredible sales pipelines. Uh, but more than that, she's an authentic leader. She's completely approachable, very funny, and, uh, and very confident. She brings a huge amount of energy, which was inspiring to participate with her and, uh, and really difficult to keep up. Uh, I really enjoy chatting to her in this podcast. So if you're interested in business, if you're interested about taking a major step in your life and you're interested in uh, pushing yourself beyond your limits, Rose is an incredibly inspirational person to listen to. If you're loving the content so far, please make sure that you go ahead and like or follow or subscribe to my content to make sure that you're getting up to date when new content's coming out. And beyond that, you'll make me incredibly happy. Cheers. the show. I said I was going to do that, but Rose is here and I'm so happy to have you. Um, Rose, I, just, I, I was saying before we started recording is that um, your, your journey for me has like really been quite impressive. Uh, you've got McKinsey in there, then you've sort of pioneered uh, the Million Dollar Girl Next Door. Maybe you can just talk about uh, you know, what that is, what the million, Millionaire Girl Next Door is, and how it actually works and, and what the journey from McKinsey was like. Of course. I realize my brand name is a bit of a mouthful. Yes. Millionaire girl next door. Yeah, yes. it's quite something. Yes. Um, but actually it really encapsulates this beautiful dichotomy of millionaire, maybe let's say luxury or high-end aspirational with very basic girl next door, super ordinary, will wear clothes from Zara and that'll be it kind of thing. Yeah. And so the millionaire girl next door is really a com combination of like what my life looks like and knowing that so many other women out there also desire their version of success without needing to be over the top with it or flash it, but to be kind of like that secret millionaire girl next door nobody really knows about, but is feeling very satisfied with her success. Um, so that's what the brand is about, but that's um, obviously the, where we are right now. And that's not how things looked when I first started the business nearly six years ago now. So um, as you said, I was a McKinsey strategy consultant when I first started my career. In fact, I ended up being the first female undergraduate from the University of Bath which is not really a target university for McKinsey, uh, to land a, a graduate job into McKinsey at the time. I couldn't find anybody else like me. And of course that then led to this feeling of being a massive imposter. And I'll be honest with you, I spent the first month at least at McKinsey expecting an email in my inbox saying, sorry, Rose, we made a hiring mistake. We've got to let you go. I thought that was genuinely going to happen. That's a thing to carry. I know, I genuinely thought it was going to happen. Um, cause I just wasn't, I wasn't fitting the profile of what I thought they would be hiring. Anyway, um, I spent two years at McKinsey and to be honest, it kind of felt like square peg round hole. But the reason I was there is because I have parents who are essentially entrepreneurs. They've run various businesses over the years, failed a lot, um, and are now successful today. But I spent the first 10, 15 years of my life watching them struggle running a business. 
having conversations at the dinner table about money and paying the mortgage. And so money's never been a taboo topic for me at all. It's always been a, how do we solve this money problem type thing? And I really wanted to be able to help them, but I couldn't. I was too young. I didn't know, understand the world. And um, that but kind of the result of that experience, I suppose, as a child and a young teenager is a was a decision to never have to run my own business and always work for somebody else so I had a safe and secure income. So I went to McKinsey knowing McKinsey was the CEO factory and that like 10% of the FTSE 100 CEOs have been at McKinsey or something like that. I saw that information at the age of 17, 18. I thought, right, that's my plan. That's where I'll go. Um, but very quickly learned that I really don't enjoy working for the people. <laughs> and I don't like having other people's deadlines on my plate. And I also don't like having to put up with just the silly crap that you have to put up with. And so I burnt out trying to fit my square peg in a round hole for those two years and also working the crazy hours that that you do at McKinsey. But there was also another experience that I had that was quite a defining moment for me when I look back at it now. And there was one very memorable day that I was sat in a windowless office room somewhere in Scotland on client site. It was cold, it was horrible, with team members and a project that can only be defined as the worst of, of like McKinsey projects. You know, just everything goes wrong. It was one of those projects, having a terrible day and um, just feeling kind of depressed about the whole thing. And my boyfriend at the time, who's now my husband, was out in the Mexican outback riding horses. And I was like, what the hell? Why, how are you doing? What? And he was being paid to be there. He's a pilot for British Airways, just to fill that gap in. And he sent me a, a reply back to my message of like, what, that's amazing, how the hell, I wanna be there. And his reply to my message was, life choices, babe, life choices. Oh. And he was a good job he was in Mexico because I would have walloped him one, frankly. <laughs> yeah. But that was when I really realized that if I want to have a life of adventure, variety, fun, and make a lot of money, as well as make a really big impact in the world, and use my skill sets and strengths to actually help people, which is not how I felt at my previous job, then I need to make some other life choices, clearly. And it took a long time for me to then put all the dots together, I suppose, and figure out the plan from there. But in the end, I ended up leaving at age 25, as I said, totally burnt out. And it's probably, probably spent about two years rebuilding who I was before then the business really took off. Because those first two years of business are really hard. You don't know what you're doing, how you're doing it, what you're selling, who you're helping, mm. how to even charge any money. Um, and I had a lot of healing work to do as well in those first couple of years. And then 2020 things really took off for me. And I guess it's kind of looked like it's been an overnight success, but it took years to get there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah I think that's always it. You get the Instagram version of the stuff and we're, we're sort of seeing you at kind of like in, in a peaking curve and thinking, Wow, you know why well, it looks so easy, but there is there is a certain amount of grind. Yeah, uh, and just on the healing bit, you know, like what was the healing for you? What was it that you did? Um, was there a moment of clarity that you said, "Okay, I'm not good," um, and now I need to activate X to heal, mm -hmm. or was it just a factor of time? Um, I did some deep work around it for sure, and the fact that I entered McKinsey feeling like such an imposter to the extreme that I felt wasn't really the fact that it was, I'd come from Bath University and all that kind of stuff. It was actually experiences I'd had as a child that had made me feel like I wasn't good enough in some way. And don't get me wrong, I had a beautiful childhood, wonderful parents, nothing traumatic happened in my life, it was fine. 
However, there are certain things that we say to kids, either, either as parents or as school teachers, that then lead them to doubt themselves or not trust their own creativity or to feel like they're not good enough in some way. Do you way. have an example? Oh, I do. Uh, <laughs> so, <laughs> um, the first time I ever did a test at school, let's say five, six years old, the first time that you get measured as a human, pretty much. And I got something like nine out of 10, let's say, like a pretty high school that I was really pleased with. I go home, tell my dad this, super proud of myself. And he turns around and said, so what happened to the other 10%? And instantly I feel like nothing I do is quite good enough, no matter how hard I try. Therefore, I am not good enough. And it was all completely unconscious. It was just one of those like five-year-old things that you experience that you don't think anything of as an adult, but has a huge impact on how you experience yourself in the future. And of course, my dad wasn't being nasty. He was more like, well, do you know what you need to do next time to do even better? He was curious for me, but I took it the completely wrong way. And that's what kids do. We take things the wrong way and that's okay. Um, so it was those little instances that had a huge impact on who I saw myself to be and then also how I would respond in a situation. So another example for you, when I was um, in a meeting uh, as a McKinsey consultant, we had the partner on the phone call and the rest of the team around the phone. And I suggested an idea or I, I provided a thought and the partner said to me, oh, that's a really good idea. And my immediate thought in my head at that point was, she doesn't really mean that, she's just saying that to be nice. So I was constantly telling myself that no matter what I was doing, it wasn't good enough. So that's hard work. <laughs> that is hard work. I, I've actually, I've had something similar like working with the coach, but um, it was actually sending feedback out to all of my friends, <clears throat> family, and sort of like influence, my social influence circle, saying, hey, can you give me feedback on myself? Mm -hmm. And, you know, you you, I wasn't expecting the worst, but you condition yourself to say things like, oh, they're only telling me that because they love me, or they're only telling me that because I'm a friend. Like, yeah. Actually, they're your friend or they love you because of those things, mm -hmm. right? Like, And so when I got this great feedback from, and there was this common thread, I was like, okay, you need to stop listening to that. Like, that's the change you have to like, people are not just gonna say that for nothing. And I also uh -huh. tried to put in, people who would be very brutal and very honest. And I, and I got some really honest and uh, you know, sort of uh, constructive feedback. But the main thing I got back is like, okay, the things that people tell you are actually true. And if you believe them yourself, that's gonna only serve you. There's no, there's no reason to not believe it, you know? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And so, and the deep work, just going back to that. So, so what was some of the deep work that you said, okay, I, I, I know that there's some damage here. I need mm. to work on this stuff. Yeah, so I called it putting myself in the slammer every Friday morning, <laughs> which oh, looked wow. like working with a coach one to one, going back into these instances, into these memories, figuring out why is it that let's say this client that's just said something to me this week is making me feel this way. Well, let's go and backtrack that to the experience I had as a child. And even though people that are listening right now might think, well, I can't remember all the things happened to me as a child. You remember, you figure it out in the end. You sit there long enough, it's like, oh that conversation i had or like that thing that happened to me and you can go back and heal that moment and then it impacts everything mm. after that um and it's heavy work it can be really um tiring i was bawling my eyes out a lot of the time because there's so much emotion attached to those instances and um it's just so worth it the way i saw it was i could take my bag of s-h-i-t with me all this baggage with me to my million pound company million dollar company and, and all the success that i desire trying to carry it up this hill or i can just like let the bag go 
and go up the hill anyway. And I knew the latter was going to be so much more easy. Um, so that's why I decided to do the work. And I'm really glad I did. Yeah, that's <laughs> awesome. Yeah, I think that also like the setup of these things, like McKinsey's a big accomplishment, like, right? Like it's, mm -hmm. uh, it's got, uh, it's got all of the factors in terms of it's, the, you know, the CEO works a factory and mm -hmm. whatever it is, like just the accolade itself is pressure. Mm -hmm. And uh, and I think that a lot of people can sort of walk into these things and and sort of set themselves up for failure on that stuff. Like it's just it is how it is. Uh, you know, sort of the same thing with me working. Like I was in working in a unicorn. The founder asked me personally, "Will I go to India and work with him there?" And that Im immediately was the pressure. Now I have to perform here, and then arriving there, like, oh, it's India. I don't know anything about the market. Like it's just so many things that have started to like manufacture that actually it ended up with a massive anxiety breakdown for me that then I had to sort of recalibrate and work through, which was good. But, um, you know, we, we can we can set ourselves up for this in many ways by just not understanding how sort of our psychology works. Yeah. And, and have you identified anything like specifically about how you work now that you said, like, these are things, this is how I work and this is how I model myself? Yeah. So I run a business right now that has a team. I'm serving between 30 and 60 clients at any one time that I have almost weekly interactions with. And almost all those clients are older than me. And they all bring me their problems to help them solve. Nah. So I'm constantly problem solving. And then also problem solving with the team to a certain degree as well. Um, and so I think I probably got pretty good at finding clarity in the chaos, cutting right to the source of something and finding a solution really fast and moving forwards from a deep sense of inner confidence, inner peace and conviction. And that's quite magnetizing, I think, to people. Um, and that's not because I've decided one day that I'm good enough, but because I earned, <laughs> really did the work and earned the right to feel like I believe in what I'm saying here. Um, and I think sometimes we end up with two types of people, one type that really doubts themselves, really has like a deep confidence, like lack there in one way or another, which is what I was before. And we also have a different type of person that just kind of belie believes that the absolute bee's knees and doesn't necessarily have the emotional intelligence around what they're saying and how they're saying it. And I think those people that are there at the beginning that have worked their way into having deep senses of confidence come from a completely different place within themselves. Um, so yeah, I'm really proud of what we've now created off the back of that inner work as a team as well, because I'm no, definitely not doing it on my own. Yeah, that's awesome. And so Millionaire, millionaire Girl Next Door, um, uh, you know, my summary understanding of it is that you empower women to take on, to build their coaching business. Is that correct? Yeah, so it, start, it kind of started with serving coaches. However, okay. the word coach is a very broad term. Yeah. It can mean so many different things. And so really I see the women that I support as experts in their own right in some way. Everything from um, fertility coaching, postpartum, doulas, all those sorts of things to um, weight loss, menopause, hormonal uh, changes that people are being supported with. Obviously business and relationship coaching. Um, we've got people that are in like change management certifications and helping people prevent getting cancer in the future. And it's like, it's wild. The number of niches I end up supporting is incredible. So I think the word coach doesn't quite encapsulate it enough anymore. Almost like practitioner maybe or yeah, something. You know, it's I think so. Like experts that are really here to help other people. And they often have one thing in common and that is their marketing and sales skill set isn't where they want it to be, to be able to reach the people they want to reach and make the money they want to make. And that is, I guess, the hole that I'm able to equip them like fill fill and like equip them with so then they can go on and create the the income and the success that they want um so that very much looks like 
equipping them with understanding of online marketing, social media, um, running ads, copywriting, funnels, all that good stuff that mm. really is the toolkit to be able to grow an online business. Mm. So that's like the one thing that I just noticed, like what you're talking about is applicable to more than just women. So what was the decision to focus on women? Like why, why that angle? Like not anything about it. It just mm. like when I think about like, geez, I could use that. that. That sounds amazing. And if yeah. I want to develop this. So, so what was the decision behind that? So it was a piece of data that I came across about a year or two after leaving McKinsey. And um, we know that there is a corporate salary gender gap, right? Mm -hmm. I think it's around 17, 18%, depending on what data set you look at. Um, but what is less broadcasted is the income gap between men and women in the entrepreneurial space. And that's reported to be around 10% more. So we're looking at like 25 to 30% being the income gap. Even when you control for things like industry, time in business, like all these different things you can basically control for, you're like, there's still an income gap here. Mm -hmm. And that really annoyed me, <laughs> especially when I come across so many capable women that simply are not making the money that they could be and should be. It kind of angers me, irritates me. What is the main reason that that exists? Like why, it just doesn't make sense that if you both like, if you're calling the shots yourself, why are you mm -hmm. earning less? It's multifaceted. Um, the problem is like a combination of different things. I think on a fundamental level, we as women in society are not socialized to feel comfortable taking and wielding power in some way. We are considered, let's say the bitch or the person that's on like a power trip. And we know this based on, funnily enough, McKinsey research, that a man, man in power is more likable than a woman in equivalent levels of power. And so when we think about money, what's money? Money is power a lot of the time. It gives us choice. It gives us an ability to change things. So if money equals power and women aren't socialized to feel comfortable taking and wielding power, what do we end up with? Women not charging the amount of money they should be charging. Women not following up on unpaid invoices. Um, women not going for the bigger contracts they could be going for as entrepreneurs. And also then receiving that too. Um, the man being favored over the woman because the man's able to come across more confident when he's pitching for the work. All these sorts of things. It's so complicated. Yeah. But when it came to seeing that problem, I was like, well, I've got a skill set that I could help solve this problem with. So why don't I just try and see how far I get? Um, the background context to this as well is when I was at university, 19, 20 years old, I would cycle across the city of Bath to go and support a charity shop owner, a woman, to support her in drumming up footfall and reducing her costs. She was somebody who was fairly dyslexic, very similar to my father. My father cannot barely write a word that makes sense. Vowels are not his thing. If you can't do vowels, you basically can't do like spelling, let's be honest. Um, but he's gone and built, and my mother have gone and built an extraordinarily successful business. So I think part of me was like, wow, I get to help this woman. And I was gonna get to help my father in some way. So there's a real deep connection there. I was doing it completely for free because it was fun. So if I started doing this at the age of 19, you can tell there's a bit of a thread here of like mm. really loving, deeply being really like in love with, the opportunity to support other entrepreneurs on actually reaching their full potential on a one-to-one -one basis. It just fills me up so much. That's awesome. And the, that, you know, you talk about the, the, the data that sort of supports that, if I can summarize this, maybe not damage the, through the summary, but it sounds like women are psychologically conditioned to not 
go after, the things they should go after mm-hmm. because of society, whatever the rules are, mm-hmm. etc. So if if she's seen to be, uh, I don't know, uh, what's on a power trip or whatever, because she's asking you to pay the invoices, she tends to not ask you to pay the invoices. So mm-hmm. is that the is that the common thing you find in terms of optimizing their them? Is that conditioning them to say, hey, it's okay to ask for these things. It's okay to take the shots that you want to mm-hmm. take. Yeah, and it's also okay to say no. Yeah. In the context of well, somebody's booked a sales call with me, but they've already told me they don't have the money and they don't want and they can't like pay me or move forwards. And so I go back with, well, do you want to take the sales call then? Well, I feel like I'll be I'll be mean if or like she won't like me if I don't. Whatever, mm. right? You see, like it ends up being quite an emotional piece to it. Um, and it's just like sometimes it's, the, it's as basic as encouraging people to put the boundary in place and say, no, I'm not going to spend my time on that. Mm. Whereas I think other, maybe in some cases, other men will be like, sorry, it, it's not worth my time. I'll just move on to the next person. Yeah, yeah definitely. Not me. I mean, I, I panic about people liking me. It's, 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 <laughs> it's the current psychological book I'm reading about, like being okay with not being liked. You know, it's yeah, like, yeah, like yeah. That's, a, that's a thing for me to say. And it's, it gives a lot of freedom to say, well, that, I'm not doing that. And you, you end up chasing relationships you shouldn't chase. You mm. end up uh, chasing opportunities or supporting opportunities you shouldn't be supporting. And yeah. it generates a lot of a lot of life pressure for you. So it's, it's quite crazy. And so, But yeah. you've, you've also written a book. I did, yes. I ordered the book, by the way. Did you? I Yay. thought it would arrive by uh, yesterday. Amazon said it would come, but it hasn't come. But the, the, Evergreen, uh, the Evergreen Revolution. Right? Yeah, that's right. We can't trust Amazon in Portugal. You know, it's like, it said it would be here. It's not here. But... <laughs> no. uh, but to be honest, if it did arrive, I wouldn't have read it in time. So like, <laughs> That's I would have just put it on the table and say, look, I bought your book. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I wrote a book. I did indeed. It took me 40 hours to write the book. I don't... 40 hours? 40 hours, yeah. Over the period of two months. So January, February this year. Um, for some reason, I thought I just recorded the amount of time it took me to, to write the book, just out of curiosity. I don't really enjoy writing books. So I wanted to get it done as quickly as possible. But This, this is the only book? This is the only book I've written. Are you going to write more? I don't think so. Okay. Yeah, right. unless we can turn like podcasts and other stuff like that, which is essentially what I did. Mm. I went and took a lot of my thought leadership that I've already put out there into the world and put it into book format and added some other bits and pieces in there, which is why it was fairly quick to get it out there. Um, but yeah, we hit Amazon bestseller in three categories by lunchtime on the launch date. And I was like, great, job done. Let's go out for lunch. <laughs> so yeah, it's nice. been good fun. So so t- tell me more about the book. Uh, is it, it's sort of follow on to um, to the business or how does it, uh, what yeah, does it do? Yeah, so I guess it's probably the best way to describe it is a whole combination of my thought leadership in the industry so far. And um, if you're aware of what the online industry typically looks like, you'll know that a lot of online entrepreneurs will do things called launches where they will open cart, let's say, to a new program, a course, a coaching program, a mastermind, something like that. And then they'll close cart on it after two weeks. And if we look at the big companies of the world, let's say the FTSE 100 companies or whatever, we find that those companies aren't opening and closing their doors. They're available to purchase their goods 24 seven, pretty much most of them. So why the heck are we doing it in the online space? It didn't make any sense to me. And of obviously entering this online space initially, I really doubted myself because I thought, well, I'm coming from this big corporate background. What relevance does that have in this space? But when I go over myself, finally, I was like, do you know what? People are doing some really weird things in this industry. Makes no sense, just based on a business background. So why don't we question some of this? And I started questioning it. And I made a bit of a name for myself that way. <laughs> awesome. Pissed a few people off. Yeah. That was great too. <laughs> yeah. And um, off the back of that, what happened was I did about nine of these launches. And at the same time was playing around with something called Evergreen Funnels. 
and discovered that I could sign one new client a week, nine weeks in a row. Um, that was essentially my evergreen funnel working working for me. I spent 20 pounds a day on Facebook and Instagram ads and ended up signing a client every week that was worth three, four, five grand. So super profitable as a marketing strategy. And lo and behold, I went and launched again after doing those nine weeks thinking, launching is the thing you're meant to do in this industry. I was so like convinced by the, I guess the general thought process mm -hmm. of the industry. And I uh, got to the end of the year, which was 2020 at the time, look back at all the data to figure out, okay, what worked, what hasn't worked? And I discovered that the months in which I was launching were the most high pressure, stressful, long working, high cost as well, because you end up spending more money on assistance, ads, like all these extra things that a launch needs and not necessarily the most profitable either as a result. And the months that I was evergreen, just letting the funnel do its work were the most chill, mm. the most profitable, the most easygoing and simple. And at that point I was like, right, that's it. I'm going full blown evergreen and I'm gonna start flying the flag for this thing because clearly I'm not the only one in this industry that's having the same experience. And um, so that book really is tracking that journey, sharing the data and the examples of what my experience has been like. And that one funnel ended up bringing in over 1.5 million US dollars mm. over the last couple of years or so now, just one funnel. And we've got another funnel that's doing like quarter of a million already and all these sorts of things. And so I love to be able to give that skill set to other women so they can create their funnels and create the success that they want without needing to burn themselves out. I also had a really beautiful conversation with a client of mine yesterday who just finished up in my 12 month program. And when she entered, she was doing kind of erratic launches um, she'd done a launch and nobody actually purchased and it was super frustrating for her. She's a really talented woman, really great at what she did. And it's actually a very strong marketeer now. Um, and she came into the program and basically grabbed everything that I taught and implemented it. Mm. And now she's in the space where she works about 10 hours a week. She has two young kids, 10 hours a week. Um, so she's really been enjoying the summer holidays and um, is signing one new client a week and has been doing so for about two and a half months now. That's incredible. Super easy going. And like people get on calls and they're ready to rumble and it's just the most beautiful thing to see. And so that just filled me up so much having that conversation yesterday. And so how does the, I'm, I'm happy to talk about the 12 steps or is this 12 month program or 12 steps 12 steps it's is 12, a recovery 12 months yeah, 12, yeah 12 steps is a recovery right like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> not alcoholic yeah, sorry um i can yeah roughly kind of give you an idea of it um so i guess we could probably say it's broken down into three phases as easy to describe it um the first phase is really about articulating the value of what you're selling in a much better way because if you're needing to use deadlines and scarcity to get people to buy it's probably not a very strong offer. <laughs> we probably need to sharpen the offer first so people don't need their hand forced, let's say, to make them invest in and buy from you. Um, so that's the first thing. And then we do something called a live funnel test, which is essentially checking that your funnel, your evergreen funnel works in a live environment that allows you to get feedback, data, immediate results, see if it works. So what does a live environment mean? So that would be like a live masterclass or webinar, like a live training you're delivering. Mm. And off the back of that training, I then debrief it with my clients. And we said, what worked, what didn't? What converted, what? Did you get people on the calls that you want to work with them? Or is it like completely off the mark? Mm. And normally there's a few tweaks to make. And then they run it again, just to be sure, or they go and evergreen it straight away. So we're then in phase two at that point. You've evergreened it. Um, then the big task here is a couple of things. First is getting enough traffic through the front end. So you're looking at obviously social media traffic, but also um, ads as well. We do Instagram and Facebook ads and also Google ads can be really powerful depending on the niche. Um, 
and on top of that partnership traffic where you're using other people's audiences so traffic is a big like chunk of thing to get right and then the second thing when you're evergreen is nailing down your buyer decision making process and the best way for me to describe that and this is relevant no matter what you are selling over the day mm. is let's say a new person enters your world and they might be might be considering working with you who knows but they're really cold and fresh to your world like maybe found you on instagram found your website whatever it might be they have a certain set of beliefs about you, the world, themselves, what you're selling. Now, if we imagine the person that's just signed up to work with you, just paid you, ready to rumble, they have a different set of beliefs about you, themselves, the world, and the work that you do. Because they've been through some sort of journey with you, right? Exactly. Right. Most people have no idea what that journey is or how it should look. Uh, and a lot of people will just chuck marketing out there thinking, well, that might work, it might not. Well, that's the latest trend. That's the thing I need to be doing. And so what I like to do is help my clients get really freaking clear on basically what the 20 things they probably need to say to get somebody from cold to essentially sold. Um, I love the fact that rhymes. And um, once you do that, you then know exactly what you need to create for your marketing. And the client that I spoke to yesterday, she's about to turn 12 months old with the one webinar funnel that she built just nearly a year ago now. And that webinar funnel's obviously brought so many clients to her because she knows what to tweak to take them down the buyer decision-making process. So that's both an art and a science at the same time. You nail that, you can basically sell anything. Right. <laughs> like, and so is this, I mean, this is applicable to everything, but the, specifically the book, is it applicable to practitioners building themselves or is it applicable to just building business? Um, Probably more if you identify with being a practitioner, expert, coach, consultant, somebody okay. that's selling knowledge okay. and you want to do it in an online capacity and reach people across the world with it. Um, you probably would find it useful as an entrepreneur in general. My mother read the book, found it quite helpful, and she's an entrepreneur. <laughs> no, I mean, immediately what you're saying to me, and like, we, you know, we as a, as a business, we sell to our consumers, to our users. We say, hey, we want you to buy a premium subscription. We want you to be part of our community. And there's a journey we need to take them on, right? Like, and I think that that's, it's all, it's all definitely applicable, right? Like, and I think understanding or refining or defining that journey is very, um, very important. Uh, and specifically in terms of uh, moving someone from a cold to a sold, uh, is there a different language in terms of things that you should say uh, for each specific client or do you find that there's general things that should always be said? Yeah, a bit of both. So okay. we know, for instance, there are essentially four avatars, say idle clients, um, for our core program. But we also know that if we speak to one of those four, they're more likely to convert in the funnel because they're typically in a higher state of pain or they're more likely to want to look for a solution. So we focus our funnel on that one avatar, but then the rest of our marketing will also speak to the other three avatars at the same time. Um, now, it's not to say they're particularly wildly different people. They're just people in slightly different contextual situations, but they all have very similar goals and kind of similar problems. Um, so yeah, I think when you get down to that level of granularity, you really truly understand what people need to hear from you. And it stops you guessing as much, which is great. Um, but yeah, we always point our funnels at the people that we know are gonna most likely convert. Well, I always try to say that with, with my sales team is like, you should write your script and you should practice that script. And then you should go back from your sales meeting and say, did I, did this work or did it not work? Whether you're mm. doing a cold call or in person, you say, did I clear all of the things? Because sometimes we see also with salespeople is that they come in and they do really well, but mm. then they start doing badly. Mm. And when they do really well, they're kind of following more of the steps they taught. And when they get better, they kind of shortcut that a little bit because yeah. they're like, well, 
last time I said this and I got the deal. And so then they start jumping steps in terms of taking a client through the journey uh-huh. and they, they battle to figure out what it is. And so sometimes just taking stock and saying, actually, this is what I'm kind of saying in my meetings and this is what's missing. Now, even when you're pitching to raise money or whatever, mm. it's like we find like we create a lot of rejection early on by saying the wrong thing that would create immediate like pushback. It's like, actually, we don't even need to talk about this till the end, right? Like, and so it, also just repositioning how you, mm-hmm. you present, present yourself. Yeah, 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 absolutely. I always slow things right down on sales calls because mm. I'm I'm liable to do that as well. You want to like get straight to the point, straight to the end. Yeah. So yeah, you got to like create space for it. Otherwise, yeah. you can sabotage it. Yeah, and uh, and so so what's next for you? Like, what are your key things that you're currently working on, and what's keeping you what's keeping you busy? I'm in a funny place right now because. I've done a lot over the last couple of years. We've ran huge retreats for clients. We had like 25 clients turn up in Lisbon and run the most amazing retreats. Um, We've obviously got the book launched and hit bestseller. I ran a a huge live event in London a a month or two ago. Um, We've created a lot of cash flow and profit in the business. Like there's basically tick, 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 tick at this point. And I'm like, entrepreneurship. Did I just complete it? (laughs) That's obviously not what's happening. But I'm like, where do I go now? And I have this craving at the moment to simplify and delete a few things, um, which I've already started doing. I'm quite quick at making decisions and doing it. But um, I'm not sure what I'm desiring next. I'm kind of in that space, in the gap. And it's kind of fun to be there because I don't know what's going to happen now. Do you feel any anxiety about it or are you are you just completely just going with it and seeing sort of yeah. what manifests? I kind of let go a little bit. I have some idea of what we can do um, that I'm intrigued by and excited by. But um, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of just playing with the gap and enjoying going back down to like 15 hours a week working and traveling a lot more. Um, we've been to Argentina, Uruguay, Brazil and Canada this month which is excessive um but like i'm enjoying that as well and then i'll probably get the urge to kind of jump back in and add some things to the plate again okay like i'm not busy enough or something needs to happen but the story that you're telling me just sounds like uh, mckinsey sucked and then from there it's just been like non-stop on the way up or is it uh have there been some big like failures along the way that you like that really sucked and that was a moment of clarity for me yeah, I've definitely launched things and nobody's bought. Um, I've definitely banged my head against the brick wall for a long time on a lot of things. The first two years were hard. I, there was such a lack of clarity on what I was selling, who I was selling it to, how I was doing it. So much self-doubt and a waste essentially two years. I guess in hindsight, it feels like a waste, but actually it probably wasn't. Yeah. Um, Invested there. Yeah, <laughs> it was it was tough. And then 2020 um, was like, the, I guess, the turning point year to some degree. Things started to really kick off. And I think at that point, I just got sick of myself. Mm-hmm. And I was like, right, I'm over it. Like, I'm going to push through the barriers that I keep putting in front of myself and, and just do things. Um, and those do things were <laughs> kind of ridiculous. But I would wake up in the morning, pull some clothes on, get out the door. I lived in Ealing it's in, in London. It's good that you put the clothes on before uh, Yeah, I mean, yeah, that's always a good thing, right? Yeah. <laughs> but like, didn't really think about it. It's like, get the clothes on, walk out the door. Um, working from home at the time, just got out the door, went and bought a coffee and then walked around the local park voice noting people on Instagram for two hours, sometimes more, booking sales calls in. Uh-huh. And that is how I finally pulled my finger out and cracked on. 
because until then I was faffing around with all the stuff that you feel like is important and it actually isn't whether that's like your website or like a thousand other things you feel like you should be doing or perfecting and all I needed to do was talk to people get on sales calls fail many many times and then finally I got fully booked in in my uh, one-to-one practice in eight weeks because I just pulled my finger out and cracked on with it so they ended up being my income generating walks every morning um and I look back now and I realize that's what my father did when he needed to rustle up income. And I think sometimes you need to have those examples in your life to be like, oh, that's what you do when you need to make some money. Mm. Um, and I think that's when things began to really kick off because I actually started to prioritize income generating activities. It sounds so freaking obvious now in hindsight, but you can't see the wood for your trees sometimes. So yeah, prioritizing income generating activities is like actually that's something that I don't think we think about when we start our businesses, we go straight to the cool stuff. Yeah. What will the website look like? Mm-hmm. What's the name gonna be? Who's gonna buy from us? But actually the yeah. conversation around buying is actually where it all starts to happen. And yeah. actually that'll drive more of the rest, right? Like if you suddenly have 10 clients waiting at the door for your business uh, to do business with you, then mm-hmm. you're gonna hustle, you're gonna get your website done and you're gonna yeah. get your name done and you're gonna get your VAT registered and all those cool things. So it's like, that's actually the the hard part but it's not that hard it's just conversations right yes yeah exactly that and i'll give you a really good example of that too uh, with the whole website shenanigans a lot of people will go and build a sales page for the thing they're about to go and sell i will never start with the sales page ever um so now i always start with sales calls and what i did was sell four hundred thousand dollars worth of a new program before even writing the sales page at that point i had various recordings of sales calls i gave them all to a copywriter and said that's your problem. Here's your 10 grand. Go and write me a sales page. Here's all your market research. And so I completely bypassed that. And so the sales page that we have today is a far more accurate represent- representation of what I'm actually selling. And so often. And what people want because yes. you're taking the yeses, right? And exactly. then the yeses are going to go into the, And then that's how the evergreen oh. thing starts to work. Right? Absolutely. Okay. That's actually, that's learning for me. I think that that's something that we tend to do is like, I've got to create the landing page. I've got to create something. It's like, actually, let's go and sell to. Yeah. to uh, to 20 so people and sort of yeah. see what happens and yeah and you are in some ways selling hot air sometimes because you probably haven't created it but that's kind of the definition of being an entrepreneur you've got to create as you go and then it's great because you're actually creating for the people that are sat there in front of you waiting to receive it so it's going to be better because you've already got the people in front of you yeah it's a really good thing to think about like not just as entrepreneurs just like even in your businesses like it's like what to do first and uh, yeah, like i keep going back to sales it's like a passion of mine and i work with a lot of sales people or have worked with a lot of sales. i'm not doing too many sales at the moment <laughs> uh but the but the whole thing is that actually you don't have to sell the products we have you can sell the products we should have mm. and that's something and th- you've got access to the clients that we want to speak to so just go and s- sit with the client and say like, okay, like how do we solve your problem? Mm-hmm. And then build the product from there, like not the other way around. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, and so, and why was Lisbon a destination for you? Um, so good question. Scott, my husband is a pilot for British Airways. And when we lived in London, he kept going to work, sitting next to pilots living in Lisbon. And he's like, what are you doing in Lisbon? Yeah. <laughs> he grew up in Germany. So I think in the back of his mind, he's always thought about being back on the continent at some point. Um, and realizing that he could commute from Lisbon to London was a whole breakthrough for us. I initially put the brakes on it though, because I couldn't figure out how I was going to move my UK company to Portugal. It just sounded like an absolute headache. I was like, no, 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 we're not doing that. No way. And then finally came around to the idea. And so we moved here about 18 months ago. 
it's been hands down probably one of the best life decisions we've ever made and the community here is incredible compared... and growing it's crazy yeah, I know. Right? Yeah. um so international and um so generous and full of very humble experts and i really love that um whereas london is such a big sprawling city with a lot of finance people and consulting people of course that's who we were before but it didn't have the same level of community it felt um, but here is just it's absolute magic when it comes to the people. It's got an amazing feel. I think that you just you you feel you you feel the history and the likeness of the city. It's just there, you know. Mm -hmm. Like I, I think Lisbon specifically, and and yeah. the Portuguese people are also like really accommodating and yeah. have been very kind to us. So yeah, it's a it's a great place to live. I'm just interested in terms of the journey. And was it difficult to move your business here? Uh you make things as difficult as it needs to be, really. I mean, like, no more difficult than getting, like, a visa and everything here. Any country-to-country -country move is always going to be many hoops to jump through. So I guess you just tackle it as you go along, really. Yeah. But, uh, it's awesome to uh, to have chat to you today, and you're crushing it. And it just, I can feel the energy in things that you do. Uh, I feel the energy in your posts online. I was like, there is a huge um, amount of energy that goes behind this. Is the energy natural? Have you always found this energy or is it something that you've built the capacity to generate this energy? Um, the energy has come through faster and fiercer whenever I am in that perfect zone of genius or I'm in my perfect line of like strength or So what's skill a perfect set. zone of genius? Um, being on calls with my clients energizes me, it exhausts me because yeah. they go on for hours and we're problem solving constantly but it energizes me. Um, vocally communicating is another piece I love to do versus writing the darn book. <laughs> um, and I think just being aware of like when I'm really feeling energized and then just doing more of those things versus Microsoft Excel like I was doing before and things like that that would drain me. And they can be such like micro things but have a huge impact down to, for instance, the way you communicate, whether that is energizing or not. Um, when I do like live streams and videos and stuff like that, I often get somebody commenting saying, I love your energy, Rose. I'm like, okay, great. It's like, what do I do with that? Like, yeah. like, like <laughs> can't bottle that up and sell it. Yeah, it's, well, you are. <laughs> you well, actually, to a certain degree, you are, yeah. To a certain degree, you are. You're like, you're doing it. I think that's the thing. I, I just, uh, you know, I think you, I, I really like that phrase. It's like my perfect zone of genius or my perfect zone of, of strength or whatever that is. And, and knowing what feeds that for you is like a really critical thing to do let yeah. you know i always thought i was an extrovert and i realized i'm not really mm. I, I really get a lot of energy being on my own yeah but i like people and i like talking to people but it's hugely taxing for me so yeah. uh, like at the end of today i've done three episodes today i'm, I'm going to absolutely crash and i won't have the chance to crash because i've got two small children that don't care about my crash <laughs> <You needs. know. laughs> but it, it is that thing but like uh, uh, quietly sort of tinkering away by myself is something that generates a lot of the energy that I then yeah. put out into the rest of the world. Yeah, I'm kind of similar as well. Do you find that being with new people is more exhausting than being with people that you're already familiar with? Definitely. Yeah, I'm the I, same. I, and it's a it's such a it's such a difficult thing because a lot of the stuff in our industry and you sort of making friends and building our networks, especially in the startup space, the entrepreneurial space, is like mm -hmm. you kind of need to do it. Yeah. And um, and I and I really battle. It's like the th like if you send me to a conference thing and then there's the the cocktail drinks at night. I walk around so and if you ask anybody who knows me, you're like that's crazy that you do that. But yeah. I walk around there like I don't know who to talk to. 
what am I going to do now? <laughs> I'll go and have a drink. I have a glass of wine and then I'll just do it like a ninja bomb out the back of the room yeah. and I'm, okay. I'm gone. So I'm the same, yeah. yeah. So my husband is the absolute opposite. He would be walking around like networking that room like crazy. He wouldn't be able to remember anybody's names, but he'd have the most amazing conversations. And then I would go in afterwards and go and hold the relationship with the person, but he would do the initiation. So I think you need to tag team with somebody next time. I do. And it, it's so weird because like... In my neighborhood, I know my neighbors. Uh -huh. Like, so the guy who walks his dog every morning, I'm like, hey, Dimitri, how are you? And I have a chat to him and I remember the details about his life and what's going on with him. You know, like yeah. I'm able to on a one-on-one, -on -one, like really connect in. Mm -hmm. uh, but, you know, the thought of going into a like, crowded space, I was like, and my, my, my wife's quite good at it. She's, uh, she's you know, Portuguese heritage and everything's always a big family event. And there's yeah. like a, she's like con conditioned to lots of people, but I'm like yeah. so taxed by it. Yeah. Um, I've really enjoyed talking to you today. Uh, it's uh, It's been a good sort of uh, time shared. I think there's a lot of stuff that we can take away. So appreciate you making the time to come and chat to me today. Thank you for having me. Yeah, awesome. Thanks.